Okay, welcome everybody to this uh, LSE Middle East Center event. Uh, I'm Michael Mason, I'm the uh, director of the LSE Middle East Center. Um, our speaker today, um, I'll introduce in more detail shortly, is Dr. Ian Black, who's a senior visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Center. It's very much an in-house uh, presentation, but you'll hear that uh, Ian's experience and expertise is far beyond academia. So the title of the uh, uh, presentation today is Israeli Gulf Relations and Changing Middle Eastern Geopolitics. There's a few things I have to say before we get going in terms of procedure. Um, the format is Ian will talk for about half an hour, then we'll open up for questions from the audience. Um, if you've got a phone, please silence it. I know it's a common sense thing to say, but you, there's always at least one. Um, the talk is being recorded for a podcast, okay, uh, which will be available, what, about a week? About a week after the event. Um, the, there could well be photographs taken of you for, for promotional purposes by my colleagues here at the back. If for any reason you have a problem with that, when they approach you, just wave them away in a polite manner or put your hand in front of your face or some such other signal to put them off, okay? If you don't get that, if, if they don't receive that signal, they'll, they'll carry on taking pictures of you, okay? Which we will use to publicize uh, uh, this and future events. Um, if you want to tweet about the event, then the hashtag is uh, LSE Israel Golf with I capital G capital LSE capitals, hashtag LSE Israel Golf. Um, when we open up for questions, uh, we'll, anybody from the floor is welcome to ask a question. We do invite you to identify yourself. It's not compulsory, but it's nice to know who you are, okay? And if you do ask questions, we ask, please, that they're as concise and clear and within the question format as possible, okay? Um, to our speaker today. Um, Dr. Ian Black is, uh, it's always best for speakers to follow the details that they've given so I don't get into trouble, yes? Um, Dr. Ian Black is a, is a visiting senior fellow here at the LSE Middle East Centre. He's a former Middle East editor, diplomatic editor, European editor of the Guardian newspaper. Um, he's reported in recent years extensively on Arab uprising and their aftermath in Syria, Libya, Egypt with also frequent visits to Iran, the Gulf, and across the whole MENA region. Um, his latest book is A New History of the Palestine-Israel Conflict, published in 2017 to mark the centenary of the Balfour Declaration and the 50, uh, 50th anniversary of the 67 War. It is an MA in History and Social Political Science from the University of Cambridge, and more importantly, a PhD in government from LSE. Um, Ian avoids that um, thing which us who are only academics suffer from, which I would call the, the tyranny of specialization, where you're forced more and more to specialize and publish in very kind of fragmented areas and engage with opaque theory. Um, so Ian combines both the academic expertise with an extraordinary well-rounded and wide-ranging grounded um, uh, um, evidence-based observation of events and issues in the region, including engagement with all sorts of individuals, governmental, non-governmental, at various levels. And um, 
I should say, give you a list of a couple of Ian's books to give you a, a flavour of that, what I would call that kind of engagement with the region as a whole and with some of the major issues in the region as a whole. He's contributed to or authored uh, uh, um, The Arab Spring, Revolution, Rebellion and a New World Order, 2012, Israel's Secret Wars, 1991, Zionism and the Arabs, 1936 to 1939, not the publication date that is, publication date <laughs> is uh, 86 and 2015, uh, second edition, contributed to the Encyclopedia of Modern Middle East and uh, North Africa, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, his most recent book on Palestine Israel is called Enemies and Neighbours, Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917 to 2017, published by Alan Lane, uh, 2017. His current project, which is the subject of this talk, is on Israeli uh, Gulf relations and, and the implications of those relations on changing Middle Eastern geopolitics. There will be a Middle East Center paper being published uh, on the content of this talk and also a Guardian piece, which Ian is writing on the same subject matter, which the, uh, at least the LSE paper we hope to be online available for you within a couple of weeks so. yeah um so <coughs> let me uh, um welcome on behalf of lse um and you ian black michael thank you thank you very much thank you to uh, everybody for coming on this horrible evening um so um i'm gonna just set out a few things that have happened recently um, in the last few months alone, we've seen a number of events that once would have been considered uh, improbable or even extraordinary, but are now uh, have become a, a fairly normal feature of the geopolitical landscape of the uh, Middle East. So in the space of just a couple of days, last October, just a few weeks ago, three different Israeli ministers visited states uh, in, the, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, the most eye-catching of those is when the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu went to uh, Muscat, the capital of Oman, where he held talks with Sultan Qaboos bin Said. He was accompanied, interestingly, by the head of the Mossad, uh, Israeli Secret Service, which seemed to me at least to be a very deliberate way of signaling that there was more to this uh, relationship than perhaps uh, met the eye. And we know that because the Omani media very much uh, controlled uh, by the authorities, put out a film clip showing the uh, leaders and their respective delegations. The next day, Israel's uh, Minister of Sports and Culture, a woman called Miri Regev, she's one of the most hardline members of uh, uh, Netanyahu's Likud, she flew to Abu Dhabi in the UAE, uh, where she attended a major judo competition and also wept as the Israeli national anthem, the Hatikva, was, uh, was played. She also toured the Sheikh Zayed Mosque. And uh, shortly after that, the, uh, another Israeli minister, uh, uh, Minister of Communications, Ayub Kara, his name, uh, went to a conference in Dubai. A few weeks after that, uh, in December, just last month, Netanyahu was reported by uh, an Israeli television channel uh, to be working on the normalization of Israel's relations with Saudi Arabia. That was shortly after he defended Mohammed bin Salman and the stability of the kingdom in the wake of the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul. Uh, Netanyahu did say that the murder was horrific, but his defense of bin Salman was very similar to the arguments that were used by uh, President Trump in Washington. 
And the man entrusted with the delicate task of working towards Israel's normalization with Saudi Arabia was again the uh, Mossad chief, Yossi Cohen, who'd been with Netanyahu in Oman. Two weeks ago, we saw an American invitation to the foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, Bahrain, uh, and Israel, and many other countries, including European countries, to attend a conference in Warsaw in the middle of February. That's about containing Iran. It's not yet clear who will be attending that, uh, but Netanyahu is Israel's foreign minister as well as its defense minister, and he may well want to seize on another rare photo opportunity uh, to be seen with his Gulf counterparts. Uh, there is a, a general election looming in Israel in April. Uh, just this last weekend, Netanyahu was in Chad uh, in the Sahel, uh, renewing Israel's diplomatic relations with that country, and he said it was part of the revolution we are carrying out in the Arab and Muslim uh, world, worlds, and that he would soon be visiting other uh, Muslim countries. Last May, the list goes on, and maybe I need to cut it back a little bit, but the Bahraini foreign minister publicly defended Israel's military response to Iranian missiles that were fired from Syria uh, across the border. Um, not clear to me whether there was the Golan Heights or, or Israel proper, but the defense came from um, Bahrain. The same Bahraini minister, the foreign minister, praised Netanyahu's defense of bin Salman, and the stability of uh, Saudi Arabia. In December 2017, when uh, Trump announced the controversial move of the American embassy to Jerusalem, the same Bahraini minister tweeted, it's not helpful to pick a fight with the US over side issues while we fight, while we together fight the clear and present danger of the theo-fascist Islamic Republic. Uh, last December, the Qatari government issued a statement saying it was working, quote, hand in hand with Israel, as well as with Egypt and the UN, to relieve the misery of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and actually, Israeli athletes were also taking part in a gymnastic event in Doha, the Qatari capital, the same week as all those ministerial visits uh, took place. Now, no prizes to anybody for, for, for working out that all those events concern relations between Israel and the uh, GCC. And the obvious, or the obvious conclusion, indeed, that something significant appears to be happening. Public positions on important regional positions are now closely aligned with Israel, while once secret or discrete connections are becoming far more visible. So what I've tried to do in this research that I've done uh, for um, here at the Middle East Center is to trace the history of these evolving relationships over the past dozen years or so, uh, and to try to analyze the factors that are promoting this convergence of interests between Israel and the Gulf states. So um, hostility to Iran, to Iran is the most obvious of those, that that is more relevant to the Saudis, the Emiratis, and Bahrainis than it is for the Qataris and the Omanis. Kuwait, it has to be said, uh, is conspicuously absent from this uh, story, though Israelis, in a position to know, have hinted at discrete contacts with them as well. So other factors include the growing perception of American disengagement from the Middle East, something that for all their differences, especially on Iran, uh, is seen as common to both Obama and Trump. In the background, of course, is the failure of the Arab Spring, the consolidation of assertively nationalist, modernizing autocracies in the UAE and Saudi Arabia in particular, as well, of course, as divisions and polarization between Arab states, whether over Syria 
or the uh, blockade of Qatar. Another factor, I think, is clearly impatience with the Palestinians, who politically and physically have now been divided for over a decade between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and, of course, the wider Palestinian diaspora. And then, of course, there is the realization in Gulf capitals, certainly amongst the elites, of the benefits of security, economic and technological links with an unassailably powerful Israel, both for their own sake and also because of the American approval that that brings, uh, even if that view, of course, is not universally shared. For Israel, the gains are clear, if fairly limited, politically, economically. The main message that they care about is the acceptance of Israel by Arab states and the marginalization of the Palestinian issue. Netanyahu is very good at, uh, he's very good with words, has honed different ways of expressing this. But um, this one I'm about to read from September 2017 is, is a bit of a classic. And he says, what is happening in practice with Arab states has never happened in our history, even when we signed peace agreements. In practice, cooperation in different ways and at different levels isn't necessarily visible above the surface, but what is below the surface is far greater than at any other period in Israel's history. That is a tremendous change. Nevertheless, the evidence, as I have seen it, clearly suggests that there are serious constraints on public links between the Gulf states and Israel because of the emotive power of the Palestinian issue, its ability to mobilize uh, public opinion, even if GCC governments in the past did little more than pay lip service uh, to it. And there is also a wish, understandable in the circumstances, not to allow Iran to monopolize its support for Palestinian resistance. Another conclusion that I've reached is that um, most former, probably all former, and some serving Israeli officials uh, recognize those constraints in the, Arabs, in, in, the, in the Gulf, though the Israeli government still works to promote multiple connections with what uh, are defined as moderate Sunni states, even if those connections remain below the surface. So overall, I would say, what's most striking is that the acceleration that I've, uh, has taken place in recent years has taken place despite the fact that prospects for any kind of acceptable resolution to the Palestinian question have never been so poor. Now, that matters in principle, at least, because all Arab states support the Palestinians, as do institutions like the uh, Arab League. All are committed to the Arab Peace Initiative of 2002, which requires a return to the uh, 1967 borders, the creation of an independent Palestinian state, as well as a just and agreed solution to the refugee question. Um, actually, the, the Arab Peace Initiative was amended in a very interesting way uh, just a few years ago, in 2013. It attracted very little attention. Um, and it was under U.S. pressure, and it was with the help of the Qataris, to uh, include in the Arab Peace Initiative the concept of uh, mutually agreed and minor land swaps. Now, that meant that all Arab states are effectively signed up to a workable, on paper, a workable a way of getting to the two-state uh, solution. Of course, there are growing doubts, and rightly so, about Israel's readiness for such a solution. Netanyahu's position, he's about to become the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history, is that he would countenance a state minus. Um, and of course, as polling demonstrates, Arabs across the region have 
an emotional, national, or religious connection to the Palestinian cause. Um, and that acts as a significant um, uh, barrier, I think, to more advanced normalization or more public normalization that's already taken place. Now, I can see that I've already used up a lot of time, so I'm going to just skip through my own notes here and just to say that we need to trace a few significant moments in the development of this story. You all know, I'm sure, if you're here tonight, you're probably extremely expert, um, but it's worth recalling that there's, there are two stages to the story of relations between Israel and the, uh, and the Gulf states. The first stage began in the mid-1990s in the wake of the Oslo Agreement between Israel and the PLO. Um, I'm talking about a later stage. After the second intifada, which began in 2000, those, what remained of those links, what remained of those public links basically disappeared. Um, the time, the, the events that matter took place in the early years of the new millennium. Just rushing through it, the 9-11 attacks on the US, the Saudis launching what became the Arab Peace Initiative, which we've just uh, talked about, the exposure in 2002 uh, of Iran's um, secret uranium enrichment uh, facility, the empowerment of the Iranians uh, in the wake of the US-led invasion of Iraq and the overthrow of Saddam, uh, and the, all these events sharpened the focus on the influence and aspirations of the Islamic Republic uh, across the Middle East. It wasn't just Israel. In 2004, King Abdullah of Jordan famously uh, warned of the appearance of a Shia crescent across the region. The Hariri assassination in 2005 was immediately uh, seen to involve the Syrians and perhaps Hezbollah, of course, uh, found, uh, supported by the Iranians, and so on and so forth. The change became much clearer, I would argue, uh, in the Second Lebanon War of 2006, when Hezbollah inflicted serious blows on superior Israeli forces that boosted concerns about the challenge from Iran. And in July of that year, as the war was coming to an end, uh, a man who many of you will have heard of, Bandar bin Sultan, a Saudi prince, um, condemned the Hezbollah actions. And he uh, described it not as legitimate resistance, mokawama is the word that matters in Arabic, but a miscalculated adventure. So you have a, a statement from an important Arab country uh, about that event. Um, and within Saudi Arabia, there was pressure on uh, officially uh, connected clerics to oppose any support for Hezbollah uh, and, and so on. Uh, and there, an American diplomat told me who was very involved in this, they said there seemed to be a common interest for the Saudis and Israelis in dealing Hezbollah and, uh, in parenthesis, Iran, a serious blow. Assad in Syria said that the war had exposed half-men, a reference to the opposition of the Saudis, uh, Egypt and Jordan to Hezbollah. So the war lasted for over a month. And at the end of it, shortly afterwards, an important meeting, a secret meeting, took place in Amman in, the, in Jordan. And it was between the same Bandar bin Sultan, who was uh, the Saudi national security advisor. He'd been, for many years, he'd been the Saudi ambassador to the US. And the Israeli prime minister, Ehud Olmert. Um, 
The story was leaked to the Israeli media, almost certainly, I'm told, by Olmert himself, because he was criticized for having performed badly in the war. Um, Bandar wasn't named, but um, uh, he was eventually, and the Saudis were furious at the publicity, at the exposure of this um, very, very unusual uh, high-level uh, meeting. Officials were quoted at the time as saying that Israel had been making efforts to discuss the Shia threat and the Saudis' ideas for peace. And one unconfirmed report, which I believe to be true, described a meeting around the same time in Aqaba in Jordan between Bandar bin Sultan, the head of Jordanian intelligence, the chief of the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, and they decided to build up and accelerate intelligence uh, exchanges to deal with Iranian threats. So that's an important moment in the development of this story, a very rare public glimpse of something that wasn't meant to be public. And I think I need just to interrupt my own narrative, just to point to a, a quite a serious problem with this subject. Bear with me, but it, it has to be said. So, Olmert, who ended his political career in uh, in, in, in disgrace, was, went to jail for corruption. But later on, a couple of years ago, he wrote his memoirs. Very interesting to see the memoirs of anybody who's uh, held public office at a sensitive time. I mean, not quite as much as David Cameron, it's true. But So Olmert's memoirs made no mention whatsoever of anything to do with the meeting that he'd held with Prince Bandar in September 2006. And that is because... This is an important point. Israel's clandestine relations with Arab countries are considered to this day a national security issue by the military censorship authorities uh, and indeed by a committee that has to vet and approve the memoirs of uh, former officials and politicians. So secrecy, I emphasize, is a very, very significant factor uh, in this story. Even so, relatively speaking, uh, the issue of relations with the Arab world is discussed fairly openly in Israel, within certain limits, but it, it is still a taboo, uh, albeit to different degrees, uh, in Arab states. It is also true, as Saudis in particular often point out, that Israel has a clear interest in deliberately advertising, flaunting, and exaggerating its meeting of minds or convergence of interests with the Gulf states, though, of course, without giving away any uh, dark secrets. Um, so a, a former aide to Netanyahu told me of that message that I quoted, he said it's very carefully drafted to give a positive message without spilling the beans. And Arabs nevertheless repeatedly complained that Israeli leaks or indiscretions uh, ignore their sensitivities. Um, in the Gulf, secrecy and deniability, however implausible it is, remain the norm when it comes to questions of dealing with uh, Israel. So that means it's uh, difficult or even impossible to confirm uh, or disprove media reports which can often be politically motivated in the context of the very sharp uh, divisions of inter-Arab and Middle Eastern uh, politics. Uh, the, the Emirates and the Saudis versus Qatar, Turkey, the Muslim Brotherhood and all that. Uh, that's the main axis. So propaganda, misinformation and deliberate opacity are significant barriers to understanding. So bearing in mind that health warning, just a few more uh, uh, landmarks as the story unfolds, because I do think it is necessary to understand how we got to uh, this point and how this acceleration took place. 
So the convergence of regional positions between Israel and the Gulfies began to be much more visible, much more apparent from around 2007. So Condi Rice, you remember, was um, George Bush's uh, Secretary of State. Uh, she went to a meeting of the GCC in uh, February of that year, and she was really impressed by the lack of interest in the familiar uh, question of, of, of the Palestinians. Iran is number one, two, three, and four, she wrote later. Another uh, senior diplomat, a Western ambassador, he said, suddenly the Middle East peace process fades into insignificance and you're beginning to get a strategic alignment between Israel and Israeli and Saudi interests. The Israelis started to talk much more publicly around that time about uh, what they could do with the moderate Arab bloc, as they defined it. Of course, they already had relations, as you know, with Egypt and Jordan. Um, Saudi impatience with the Palestinians is quite an important factor as time goes on. Uh, King Abdullah, you may recall, he brokered an agreement in Mecca between Hamas and Fatah. In 2007, that collapsed just a few months later. Um, there were other signs. Olmert, still in office, agreed to include Saudis uh, in a committee of religious leaders who were supposed to administer the uh, Muslim holy places on the Haram Sharif in, uh, in, in Jerusalem, which have always been and still is the preserve of the Jordanians under the peace treaty. So there were gestures of goodwill uh, towards the Saudi side. Uh, it's around this time, many of you will know the name, Prince Toki al-Faisal, an important figure, former head of Saudi uh, uh, intelligence. He began appearing at sort of track two fora. Uh, and in fact, I saw him one in, uh, in, in the beautiful Oxfordshire countryside in, in the autumn of um, 2008. The war, of, the war in Gaza of 2008 end of 2008, early 2009, 1,400 Palestinians were killed, including several hundred women and children, uh, was another important moment. But the inter-Arab differences for all the condemnation of Israel were very, very clear at that time. The Saudis, the Kuwaitis, the Egyptians boycotted a summit that was called by the Qataris. Uh, that's because of the Qataris supported Hamas. And then something really interesting happened. Uh, part of this is public knowledge. Part of it I've been able to dig out. Um, in early 2009, the Israeli Air Force carried out um, uh, probably two airstrikes in Sudan. Why Sudan? Uh, arms convoys were being sent from Iran via Sudan uh, to Gaza. Um, this came out in the WikiLeaks revelations, you remember, a few years ago. And so it's a fascinating story. It showed the Israelis first mounted a diplomatic campaign to um, uh, try to get the different countries to stop the weapons being delivered. And when that failed, they launched uh, these air raids. Uh, and that was done with prior notification to the Saudis. I have sources on different sides who um, confirm that. Um, by that time, by 2009, according to the man who was then the deputy head of Israel's National Security Council, senior professionals in the intelligence and security fields from Israel and the Gulf countries were collaborating. The same sources also uh, insist that the Saudis did indeed, as occasionally reported but always denied, agree to turn a blind eye to Israeli overflights uh, in the event of an attack, much discussed, 
uh, on Israel's, uh, sorry, on Iran's nuclear facilities before that idea was abandoned in 2002, largely because of American opposition. Incidentally, the point about secrecy is relevant here too. As with uh, the memoirs of uh, Olmert, the Israeli Prime Minister, the recently published memoirs of Ehud Barak, who was the Israeli Defense Minister for several years, from 2007, uh, he, uh, there's no mention whatsoever of anything to do uh, with the Saudis, which, are, which is, again, an indication of the sensitivity of this sort of issue. Um, so we know far more about this subject, generally speaking, from the Israeli side. Uh, their officials will talk reasonably openly, up to a point, about how they approach the Arab world. They divide their approach into three different uh, levels. They talk about, they talk little about, but they mention secret military intelligence and security cooperation. Um, they talk about trade, including high-tech, plans for regional transport links. For example, from, you can work out, the, if you take a, you lay a railway line from Haifa into Jordan, you can go south and get to Saudi Arabia, and you can get all the way to the Gulf. That's the sort of project they talk about. And then they talk about people-to-people -people sporting cultural contacts of the sort where we saw the Israeli minister at the judo uh, competition in, um, in, uh, in Abu Dhabi the other day. So the first category, the military one, is particularly opaque. We know very little about that. Uh, we do know, however, that uh, what's happening with Israel in Egypt, in Sinai, fighting Daesh, fighting uh, ISIS in Sinai, has brought cooperation, military intelligence, security cooperation between Israel and Egypt to unprecedented levels. The Egyptians always denied that. Until recently, I don't know if any of you noticed the interesting story of uh, uh, Sisi. He gave an interview to, uh, I think, to CBS. He gave an interview in which he said on camera that relations with Israel had never been as close as they were. And they tried to stop that interview being published. And, of course, having tried to stop it, it then attracted a huge amount of attention. Until then, they'd always uh, uh, denied that. Um, so that doesn't mean, of course, that what the Israelis do with the Egyptians and the Jordanians in the context of long-standing peace treaties is parallel or the same as what they do with the Saudis, the Emiratis, any, or anyone else. Uh, Israeli politicians and officials do refer occasionally publicly to intelligence cooperation with Arab states about Iran and counterterrorism. In November 2017, the chief of staff of the Israeli army made headlines when he offered publicly to share intelligence on Iran with Saudi Arabia. Uh, he talked about uh, the, them sharing many common interests. Um, a former senior Saudi official I spoke to says that cooperation in these areas deepened very significantly during Barack Obama's second term. In 2016, the Obama administration was hated by the Saudis and the Israelis. In a sense, it shunned them both. In response, the two deepened their cooperation. Exchanging intelligence is very important. Comparing their findings to know exactly what is going on with Hezbollah, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, and suspicious activities in the Red Seas. And I was delighted to find that a former Israeli official, senior person, made exactly the same point. In a separate conversation, he said, what made the politics of it acute was Obama. There was a sense that we were looking at an American administration that wasn't as committed 
to America's traditional friends. We had to make common cause because there was a sense of being left alone to fend for ourselves. Unwittingly, Obama contributed very significantly to the build-up of relations between us, Israel, the Emiratis, and the Saudis. Now, I'm going to whiz to the end, uh, just to make a few comments, and then please then bombard me with questions, and I'll be happy to elaborate. So, in the academic world, which of course I hold in enormous respect, um, there is an expression uh, that is used about Israel's relations with the Gulf states, and they're described as a tacit security uh, regime. It is nevertheless unclear, uh, to me at least, how this sort of de facto alliance, or even, I'm not sure that they exist, but even, let's say, there are some joint operations probably against Iran, could be turned into a wider strategy. For example, in, a, in an open military clash with Iran in the Gulf, uh, or another war between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, the only thing that's changed in recent times, in recent months, is that the unilateral reimposition of American sanctions by Trump uh, last May and the risk that Iran might retaliate by withdrawing from the nuclear agreement, uh, perhaps blocking the Straits of Hormuz, is a potential scenario for joint or coordinated American Gulf Israeli military action. There was a clue uh, a few months back when Netanyahu warned publicly, public statements are worth listening to, because they often reflect things that of course are happening more discreetly, um, that if, um, in, in the, this was in the wake of Houthi missile attacks on Saudi tankers uh, near Hodeida in the, uh, in the Red Sea. So uh, he warned that uh, Israel would join an international coalition uh, if Iran were to block the, block the uh, Bab al-Mandib Strait, that's the, the mouth of the, uh, of the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, the Gulf of Aden more precisely, and it controls access, of course, to the southern Israeli port of Eilat. Uh, recently, there was a Saudi announcement of the formation of a Red Sea entity, Kian, to protect maritime security. Um, there was no mention of Israel. We've seen, in the last few days alone, Israeli threats to hit Iranian military assets, uh, including short-range ballistic missiles in Iraq, as it's often done in Syria. It's another indication of the potential for a regional escalation on the basis of some kind of joint interest. And it'd be very interesting to see if Netanyahu, who is also, uh, also serves as Israel's foreign minister and defense minister, um, attends the conference that's being organized by the Americans in Warsaw in the middle of February, because that will give him an opportunity to pose along with his Saudi and other Gulf counterparts. Um, links with the UAE are the most extensive and the most visible. Um, we've talked a little bit about Bahrain, Oman, and Qatar, and I'm going to whiz to the end to my conclusion, which is that, broadly speaking, expectations on both sides of, uh, of this story are that links between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and other Gulf states will continue to grow in the medium term, but will not involve the establishment of overt diplomatic relations, normal uh, open trade, and the opening of embassies, the sort of normalization that Netanyahu uh, talks about. For that to happen, 
uh, it, my clear conclusion is that there needs to be tangible progress towards, revolving the, towards resolving the Palestinian uh, question, which is not likely anytime soon. In the Gulf, ruled by modernizing hereditary autocracies, which prioritize their own national interests over pan-Arab solidarity, Palestine may no longer be the central issue that it was once perceived to be, but it remains one with a wide, popular and emotional resonance that is unlikely to be simply ignored. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sure you agree with me that um, remarkable level of, of insight there into Israeli Gulf relations um, backed up with, with, with um, the type of sourcing that you'd expect um, from somebody from Ian's background. Um, we're going to go to questions. I, I had a couple of questions myself, but I don't know if I should be selfish with these, but if perhaps I, I do one and then we'll open up, and I'm kind of thinking whether to do an academic one or non-academic one, so let me try and go between the two. Um, as I understand, the, 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 one of the, 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 uh, a thesis in the paper is that the driver, I'm thinking about this idea that there's a tacit security regime emerging between the Gulf states uh, um, and Israel. And with securitization, you're expecting a driver in any such cooperation to be uh, what's called the production of enmity, the production of a common enemy. And in this case, it very much seems to be Iran. And so the question is the extent to which if Iranian relations are such that they, perhaps they won't, that in, in, in some way that they improve, perhaps, um, with uh, uh, sort of the Gulf states, whether this would then uh, dilute uh, in terms of the current strength. It seems to be that... I don't know if you'd say that's the principal driver, but it seems to me one of the, the key drivers from the paper and the talk is this, this reproduction of, of, of this common enemy and the extent to which you have to intensify, and of course uh, um, the Trump administration's helping there, intensify this enmity, then you motivate this kind of uh, security cooperation. Um, I think that's a very um, perceptive question, Michael. Um, and it requires a slightly complicated answer. So um, I think that it is true that hostility to Iran is the most obvious factor in this, and therefore uh, we need to try to work out what would happen if the situation changed. And of course, you know, we've talked in this room just a few months ago. We had a whole day, do you remember, of discussion about Saudi-Iranian uh, hostility as one of the key ways of understanding the contemporary Middle East. And of course, uh, there, there have been periods in the past where actually relations were quite uh, a lot better. The Rafsanjani period, uh, for example, in the late, uh, in the late 90s, um, we saw Ahmadinejad, who was probably the most difficult recent Iranian president. He attended the uh, Organization of the Islamic Conference in uh, in Mecca in 2006, I think, although he made a speech that the Saudis found extremely difficult to deal with. Um, but on the, um, in terms of the big picture, if it's the Iranian threat that is the main reason for this sense of a common enemy, um, it does raise the question as to um, the short-sightedness 
of what the Israelis are trying to do. And there's a lot of criticism about this in Israel as well, uh, which is to say Netanyahu is being, um, is exploiting a moment, a long moment of this enmity, but he's completely ignoring the, what many people believe is the far more fundamental question of Israel's relations with the Palestinians. And if um, he just is involved in transactional relations, supporting them here secretly, publicly, but tries, as he appears to be doing, to bypass and marginalize the Palestinians, then what happens, people ask, when uh, at some point in the future Israel's relations with Iran, uh, sorry, the Saudi Gulf relations with Iran improve, as is perfectly possible. So it's a moment that has brought them together and the argument is you've got to seize that moment mm. to try to do something far more substantial and comprehensive to solve one of the most fundamental problems mm. of, the, of the Middle East. And, of course, it's also true, as I think I said, that while the confrontation with the Iran is uh, of obsessive interest to the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Bahrainis, for reasons that we all know very well, uh, it's much less so to the Qataris and the uh, Omanis. And in fact, when Netanyahu went to Oman, to Muscat, as he did in, um, in October, there was, there was, it was very, very hard to understand what he was doing. The Omanis played a really important role secretly, but later exposed, uh, in, 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 in mediating over the nuclear deal that was reached between the international community and Iran in 2015. So what was that about? The, the Omanis aren't particularly worried by the, uh, by the Iranians. What they all have in common, quite apart from the Iranian thing, is a sense that uh, good relations with Israel are very good for their relations with the United mm. States. Mm. And that is a common factor mm. to all of them. Thank you. So we'll, what I suggest is we'll go three questions at a time. As I said, um, we invite you to identify yourselves. You don't have to. And if you keep your questions uh, uh, concise, if possible, please, here first. Yes, ma'am. Um, my question is, you talked about the, this trusted security regime um, and, you know, this uh, common enemy, Iran. I was wondering, is there any information about, I don't know if it's too far fetched to say, but a counter routine in the sense that from the Iranian side, uh, have there been any developments in response um, to, you know, these very public, uh, this, you know, this, um, yeah, this, this uh, new, newly publicized mm. closeness between, mm. the, uh, okay. mm. between Israel and the Okay. <coughs> Thank you. I can take two more in this first round. Gentlemen, yeah. Uh, my name is Sam Joseph, and uh, it's a follow-up of uh, your question about uh, Iran. And uh, uh, Russia is definitely a strong ally with Iran. So what is the uh, uh, strategic direction of the relationship between Israel and Russia uh, on that matter, and how it's affecting uh, the development of between the, uh, the, the affecting the relationship between the uh, Gulf Arab states and uh, Israel. Thank you. Yes, yeah, sorry. If, um, and third, third question, please. Anybody? Usually, our audiences are not shy here, over here. Let me throw a third country into the mix. Um, I can get another country into the mix. It's Turkey. Um, and whether there's almost a reverse dynamic <coughs> of relations between Israel and Turkey deteriorating and they've been actually improving. Um, 
Thank you. So we've got, uh, is there a, an Iranian response to what's happening, uh, some sort of concerted response, and the implications of relationships between Israel and Russia and Turkey on this relationship with the Gulf states? So on the, uh, the, Iran the, the Iranians, I mean, at the, at the level of public declarations, the Iranians and the Saudis and the other Gulf states attack each other all the time. Mm. Um, there, there is a constant propaganda war. You can see it on social media. You can see it in official media. Uh, and, um, of course, the main focus of that is over the war in Yemen. Uh, and the, the, the Saudi narrative has the Iranians seeking to backing the Houthis, the Houthi rebels, uh, in, in Yemen. But there's no, the, there's no question. The, 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 the confrontation is, is, is out there. It's, it's very, it's very uh, angry. Uh, of course, the Iranians accuse the Gulf states, particularly the Saudis and the Emiratis, perhaps more than anybody else, of being. Uh, in in bed with the with the Israelis and therefore supporting the occupation and betraying the Palestinians. One of the interesting things that's happened in recent years is that the um, given the the long um, blockade of the Gaza Strip and the division between the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank and uh, Hamas, which controls Gaza, the Iranians have been directing a lot of their support to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, which is uh, the most radical of the Palestinian groups on the ground uh, in Gaza. So uh, there's no love lost between them, and they don't really, um, they don't really pull, their, pull their punches. Um, there, was a, there was a very v vicious moment indeed. I think it was probably last September when... Uh, in Ahwaz, which is in Khuzestan, that's the uh, largely Arab province of, uh, what is it, it's sort of uh, southwestern Iran. There was an attack on a military parade where the Iranian Revolutionary Guards uh, were, were gunned down. I uh, can't remember how many people killed, 20-odd people, something like that. And that was immediately blamed by the Iranians on the Saudis, the Israelis, and so on and so forth. The Saudis have often given their support in different ways publicly. I don't know what they do secretly, but publicly they've supported uh, sort of Ahwazi Arab separatist organizations who almost certainly carried out an attack like that. So there's, there's, there's no hiding that confrontation. Um, uh, the guy asked about... Um, uh, yeah, Russia. Well, I mean, the, I think the Russian-Israeli relationship has been most fascinating over what's been happening in Syria, uh, with uh, both of them, uh, since the Russian intervention in uh, autumn 2015, uh, they have been sharing a, a common uh, war zone, if you like, they, and, and thus the, the incident recently when the, uh, the, uh, the Syrians shot down a Russian uh, uh, air aircraft because, uh, the, you know, uh, I think because of a misunderstanding. So we've seen tensions rise over that. We've seen, uh, despite that, we've seen very close relations between Netanyahu and Putin, underlining the fact that Putin is a far bigger player in Syria than Donald Trump is uh, these days. Uh, and we've also seen, interestingly, in, in the last few weeks alone, we've seen the beginning of the rehabilitation of Assad, including uh, by the Gulf states. We've seen the Emiratis uh, reopen their embassy uh, in Damascus. 
Uh, I think the Bahrainis never closed it. We've seen the Emiratis today talk about, uh, I think, convening a conference for the reconstruction of, of Syria. So all these elements are coming together. Um, um, the Gulf states also, and I don't know that much about this, but I have the impression that they care very much about keeping open channels of communication with the Russians, given that the Russians have become a significant player in the Middle East in a way that they really haven't been uh, before. On Turkey, um, uh, I mean, the question there is of the way that Turkey is perceived by the Israelis, certainly, as part of the sort of the Islamist axis, if you like, the Turks, the Qataris, the Muslim Brotherhood. The same animosity, of course, is directed towards Erdogan from the Gulf states. When the Khashoggi affair, that I think you know a bit about, um, broke out, I'm sure you're aware that the 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 the, the main sort of uh, the, the sort of the main strand of Gulf defense of that. It was all about a, a Turkish Qatari propaganda campaign and nothing to do with, uh, with anything else. So uh, the Israelis play uh, uh, quite a difficult uh, uh, game over that. Um, and, um, but there's certainly Erdogan's behavior over that. And also, I, I mean, I, you know, the Israelis, I don't think that they particularly care about what happens in northern Syria, which, which the Turks obviously care about very much, given the alliance with the, uh, the Kurdish forces uh, and the Americans and so on. And the Israelis are less concerned about that. But in the big ideological picture, there, there's a lot of animosity there. Good. Thank you. Three more questions. Um, just to, I should have said earlier that if, uh, to capture you in the uh, recording, if you're asking questions from the back, could you please be as, as uh, clear and speak up, okay, if you want to be captured in the recording with your questions. Three more questions. One more question, anybody? At the back. Thank you for your talk, Ian. And I'm wondering if in any of this you think that the cultural backlash that might come about when it comes to relationships with Israel, does that serve any, any, does that maybe prevent heads of states from taking any such actions or are they not concerned? Is that cultural backlash, yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by, do you mean like that, the BDS movement by that question? Okay, uh, here on the left. Sort of uh, linked to that, um, it's interesting, given the constraints on deepening relations any further, um, that the relations have become increasingly public over the past few years and even the past few months. Mm -hmm. Not just in the area of security with a visit to Muscat and so on, but also in the cultural side with sports events and visits and so mm -hmm. on. And do you think that represents a conscious desire not just to send a message to Iran of potential threat, um, but also a sort of warming up of respective countries to the idea that perhaps their governments might be getting closer to Israel. Thank you. And there was, I think, another question at the back, lady at the back. Um, this, um, this is just a bit more on a domestic level for Israel, but um, just a question on the investigations into corruption that Netanyahu is currently experiencing. Um, just your prediction on, on where that will go, if anything will come of it, and whether that's affecting his. Um, Thank you. So, so the, the first two questions actually are, are, are sort of linked, if I can answer them together, if I may. 
Um, so um, I think that all the Gulf states, without exception, are aware of the uh, risks of what they're doing. They're all repressive societies that needs to be spelt out so people uh, are, uh, are used to being cautious in their criticism of what the governments do. I was talking just the other day to a Almani friend of mine about Netanyahu, who's really very you know, public, in-your-face uh, visit to M Muscat. And apparently people who uh, uh, complained about that on social media were called in by the by the secret police, by the, the Muhabarat, which is you know, part of the landscape in all these countries. Um, I, I did some research on this, actually, as a sort of side theme. Um, in every single one of the Gulf states, the six members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, there is a Twitter channel in Arabic, uh, uh, and the, the relative people, Almanis, Kuwaitis, Saudis, Emiratis, against normalization. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a very well-known hashtag. Omanis, Kuwaitis, Saudis, Emiratis, so against normalization. And the normalization means, without anybody having to interpret it, means with Israel, right? Tatbi'ah, it's called in, in Arabic. Um, now, uh, it's different in different places. So, for example, the, the country that I spent most time in looking at this issue was the Emirates. Um, in the Emirates, it's no longer a taboo to talk to people about these discrete relations with Israel. So, for example, if you're in your hotel room in uh, Abu Dhabi or Dubai and you want to uh, read uh, an Israeli website, you can do that. No problem. They're not blocked. If you try to look at Al Jazeera in Arabic or in English, you can't do it. If you want to look at Middle East Eye, published in London with a little help from the Qataris, um, you can't look at that either. So that's a kind of interesting exercise, just to see what the authorities, uh, who have a very strict control over, uh, over um, websites, are, are prepared for you to see. However, in the Emirates, um, although people know about these things, they tend to be people in the elite they tend to be, have an international outlook. They tend to be cosmopolitan. Uh, anything to do with Israel and, Emir and the, uh, the UAE is not reported on in Emirati media. So it's not a taboo, but it's not something that is there. Um, so I think governments are aware of this. Uh, the Emiratis have been the most advanced in terms of their, what we described as these people-to-people -people contacts, but there are always protests about it. Uh, certainly on social media. It's a difficult subject. It would be an interesting research project for somebody who was able to spend time in all the Gulf states to actually try to gauge public opinion on that. I mean, you can't... I mean, social media, we all know, is, I mean, it's interesting, but it's not enough. It's not the whole story. Um, so the Emirates uh, have been the most forward-leaning. In Bahrain... In Bahrain, in a sense, the, certainly the anti-Iranian tone is strongest from Bahrain than anywhere else. Um, and so they've done things. So, for example, in uh, December 2017, just after Trump's decision, announcement of his decision to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, a Bahraini delegation visited uh, Jerusalem. And that met a lot of, uh, got a lot of attention, 
and there were a lot of protests about it again in Arabic social media. Um, so there is an awareness of it, and I think that the the word constraints is is correct. I think there's only so far that you can go. Uh, if you look at the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict over 70 years, then um, the two countries which have signed peace treaties with Israel uh, were immediate neighbours of that country. In Egypt's case, it regained territory lost uh, in a war. Uh, and the Jordanians waited wisely until there was already an agreement between Israel and the PLO. The fact that that agreement never succeeded uh, doesn't mean that they weren't right to wait for that. And of course, King uh, Hussein, as it then was, as he then was, uh, gave up his claim to the West Bank. So for the Gulf states to make peace with Israel while ignoring the Palestinian issue when they're, they're not immediate neighbors of it, I think is a step too far. Even, and we've hardly mentioned it, but he needs to be mentioned, even somebody as, I choose my words carefully, as innovative as Mohammed bin Salman or as uh, taboo-breaking, whatever. Uh, I mean, people have started to speculate that uh, in the coming months, there will be, in the wake of the Khashoggi affair and the damage done by that, that there will be a sort of photo op meeting between Netanyahu and bin Salman, you know, shepherded by Trump, you know, the sort of, uh, I, I'd be surprised, I mean, you know, I hope I'm not wrong, but I'd be surprised if that happened, because I think that would be going uh, too far. Uh, the question about Netanyahu and corruption, well, he's facing multiple corruption charges, but he's also just called an election. Um, I don't know what the, I don't follow that particular issue closely enough to know uh, what is likely to happen on the corruption charges, but it is quite clear and certainly this is very much a strand of thinking in Israel, that his narrative of the best relations ever with the Arab world is something that he likes to, uh, to, 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 to brag about as his achievement. He loves the photo opportunities. As I say, he was, you know, a man we've talked about, we've talked about Chad. Where will he turn up next? He, he likes that, he likes the attention, and he likes to be able to claim that Israel is less isolated and more accepted in the region than ever before. But of course, that is only a very, very uh, partial uh, version of the story. Thank you. Three more. Here first, on the end. Can I just ask if there's a missing event in your timeline in 2010 when the Israelis uh, murdered a uh, Hamas? Yeah, not deliberately. Uh, we'll hold that Sorry, you. yeah, 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 you're right. Okay. Oh, sure, yeah. I don't it, yeah, this lady here. How do you see the Gulf, Gulf dispute playing out in Israeli Gulf relations? Or do you see any kind of prioritization on Israel's side or any kind of vying for attention of the Israelis on the Gulf state side? Okay. Okay, one more here. Sure, thank you. So uh, now that we've almost confirmed that there are some Israeli Gulf relations that start appearing on the surface, uh, and also that there are a lot of hostilities between Israel and Turkey, especially with the AKP, and Israel with Iran. Does this give an excuse for Iran and Turkey for uh, perhaps in future uh, closer relations? Okay. Thank you. So, yeah, I only missed it out because um, uh, it's interesting. So in 2010, uh, a man called Mohammed al-Mabhuth was uh, murdered in a hotel room in Dubai. You probably know the story, but just briefly. So he was a senior uh, member of Hamas, 
and his role was to act as a, he was the arms procurement uh, guy from Hamas, and he worked a lot with the Iranians. Uh, so I talked a bit about the attack on the arms convoys, and of course it's related, it's related to that. So uh, that happened in a hotel in Dubai, and it was, a, uh, it was the Mossad carried out that assassination. It was very well documented, thanks to the sophisticated surveillance equipment in the hotel that had almost certainly been bought from the Israelis. Um, <laughs> and what the interesting thing about that is that, that uh, I mean, you know, it was embarrassing, but for about 10 minutes... Uh, because, you know, the Emiratis, they then insisted that uh, uh, even uh, uh, people uh, who were Israelis who had foreign passports could no longer come to, um, uh, to the UAE. But it passed very quickly. At the diplomatic level, I'm told, you know, discrete contacts continued. And uh, Israeli businessmen who go often to Dubai in particular and Abu Dhabi said, look, you know, you wait another couple of weeks for them to reply to your email, but that's about it. So it was, uh, uh, it was evidence, of, I suppose, of Israel's you know, ruthless pursuit of uh, its enemy uh, and, the, and the, the assumption, I guess, that whatever happened publicly, the Emiratis wouldn't be that really bothered by it. But it's, um, it is remarkable for how little trouble it actually caused. Uh, at the end of the day. That's actually mentioned in the paper. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the question about Israel, uh, the, the GCC, one of the really interesting things about the dispute in the, in the GCC uh, is that the Qataris who have proved, I think it's fair to say, they proved themselves to be pretty uh, good at dealing with the crisis. Um, creative, flexible, uh, good at putting across their arguments. I mean, it helps to be the richest country in the world. Per capita, of course, you can employ all those, uh, you know, expensive PR companies. And one of the things that they've done uh, since the crisis began, the Qataris, I mean, it has to be said, have always been, they've always been different from the other Gulf states. It's worth saying, I and mean, again, this is, sorry, this is because I had to rush through what I was saying, but, um, you know, the, the Qatar was the first Gulf state to open uh, a diplomatic mission for Israel. And ditto, it went to Tel Aviv in 1996 in the wake of the Oslo uh, agreement. So the Qataris have always been different. They've been very pragmatic. Um, and in the wake of the crisis with the anti-terrorist quartet, as they call themselves, that's the Saudis, the Emiratis, Bahrain, and Egypt, uh, the Qataris have reached out to, uh, to American Jewish uh, leaders in particular, to American Zionist leaders, and indeed to Israel. Uh, and they have done quite well in that respect. I mean, people, I mean, there's a man called um, okay, I can't quite think of his name off the top of my head. There's a, there, are, there are key figures, American Jewish supporters of Israel who have been invited to Doha, they've met uh, Mir Tamim, and they have basically you know, written op-eds saying that Qatar is the Israel of the Gulf because it's surrounded by ruthless enemies. And they've been very good at that. The other thing that the Qataris have done, uh, which I think is less cynical, uh, is that they have really become very, very important in maintaining precarious, volatile status quo in Gaza. They paid out very large amounts of money. Again, they have got a lot of money, it's true. Uh, but the Qataris have been handing over 
suitcases of money to keep the situation in Gaza from getting out of control. And of course they've done that, and I think I mentioned at the beginning that they'd issued a statement saying that they were working hand in hand with Israel, Egypt and the UN. And that's because they want to improve their credentials and hope that the Americans who haven't really managed to do anything so far will play a bigger role in trying to resolve the GCC dispute. On Iran-Turkey and closer relations, I mean, I think that the issue there is really bound up with the, you know, how the, the end game of the war in Syria. And, you know, we're there. Assad has won. The Iranians really, the Iranian support mattered a huge amount. Uh, Turkey's position has changed, as you know. Turkey, Erdogan called very early on for Assad to go, and Assad isn't going anywhere quite soon. So those, that relation is going to depend to a large extent on the, the end of the war uh, in Syria. Good. Thank you. Uh, next round, gentleman here, white t-shirt. Um, I wonder how you felt about, or how the Americans might feel about this closing of ties, both Trump and more traditional elements in um, Washington. Are they happy that their friends are getting together? Or do they feel a bit left out? Thank you. Okay. Other questions? At the back. Um, just, <laughs> um, does Lebanon have any part in the conversation? Or, um, Thank you. Well, Lebanon. One more question. So, what do you think is the purpose of this um, security act, or what you want to call it, secret underground, blah, 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 with between Israel and the Gulf? Do they see this as uh, a move towards actually confronting Iran militarily or just containing Iran? What's the basic uh, idea behind it? Thank you. Very good. Three concise questions. Very good. That's what we like. So, um, the Americans. Um, yeah, the Americans are happy, basically, big picture. They like it. Um, the Americans have, for many years, have tried to pull off the trick. Obviously, they're closer to Israel than anybody else. Uh, they used to have more weight in the Gulf than they currently do, I think it's fair to say. But they've always tried to pull off the trick of appealing to what they would define as Arab moderates to reach out to Israel. They've already got Jordan and Egypt, and for a long time they've tried with the Gulf states as well. So in fact, some of the more interesting stuff, I think I referred to WikiLeaks. Um, it, 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 there's a, a, a bunch of the, Wiki, the WikiLeaks documents came out in 2010, so they don't go beyond that date. So some of the mo more interesting stuff in WikiLeaks is you get in American diplomatic documents, um, I can probably find it, you get... Um, very interesting insights because, say, the American ambassador in, uh, in Bahrain is talking to the, the king of Bahrain, and the king of Bahrain says, yeah, we, we get on really well with the Israelis, we do all kinds of things with them. We don't talk about it, of course. And, of course, that's then leaked. So, so the, the, the Gulfies want to tell the Americans how well they're getting on with the Israelis, okay? So, so that's a particularly good source of that. There's a, there's a wonderful quotation from one of those documents which says, you know, the American diplomat reporting back to the State Department, quoting either the King of Bahrain or the Bahraini Foreign Minister, and he says something like, uh, yeah, and the Gulf Arabs think that, think that Israel can, can work magic in Washington, something like that. So it's very interesting insight. The Americans are pleased with it. Uh, the latest chapter in the story began, in a sense, when... Uh, 
uh, on the day that, uh, well, in the, very soon after Trump entered the Oval Office, worth noting that his first foreign trip as U.S. president was to where? Was to Riyadh. Uh, he went to Riyadh, where he met the uh, Saudis and other leaders from all over the region, from the uh, Muslim world, as well as that famous photograph of him with, with uh, you know, the, the, the glowing orb, weird picture. Um, and, um, of course, what did he do after he went to Riyadh? He flew directly to Tel Aviv, which was in itself, of course, the American president can fly wherever he wants, but it was a, a, a very deliberate signal of the kind of thing that the Americans want to broker between the Gulf states and Israel. And in fact, I mean, I, again, I haven't had time to mention it, but an important indicator of the increasingly close ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia is the fact that in March or April last year, um, an Air India plane took off from Delhi, flew across Saudi Arabia, and landed at Tel Aviv airport. Now, that's the kind of thing the Americans have been working on for years. What the Americans wanted to happen and failed to get was an agreement for El Al, the Israeli national airline, to fly from Delhi across Saudi Arabia uh, to Tel Aviv. So that was a sort of compromise. And you can see, and it's, a very, it's an interesting anecdote because it illustrates, if you like, it embodies the, the, the limited nature of what the Saudis are prepared to do. It shows that they're aware... Of, of those constraints. Uh, so the Americans are happy. Uh, the question about Lebanon, uh, I, Lebanon and Israel are in a state of uh, war uh, because of Hezbollah. I know of, I mean, uh, Jim should answer this question more than me, I think, but I know of no, I know of nothing of the sort of measures of normalization that we talked about with the Gulf. Of course, in the past, Israel tried to forge a relationship over many years and succeeded with the Maronites in Lebanon. Of course, that was the background to the uh, war of uh, 1982. And I, you know, there may well be still you know, secret connections, but that's not part of this story. And it's certainly not the kind of thing uh, that uh, is, is ever made public, either you know, accidentally or, or on purpose. Um, what was the last question I was about? Ah, Jim, your question. Difficult question. Old hack. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that it is, it, it is correct to say that the main driver of these relations, particularly with the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, is their common hostility to Iran. Qatar and Oman, slightly different. Um, but I also think it's true that it isn't clear how you turn this into any sort of operational alliance. I mean, people who are far more expert in military strategy than me have made this point for, for some time. Will they, will they go to war together? You know, in the summer of uh, 2017, the period when, how long was it for, that uh, Hariri was held hostage in, uh, by bin Salman in Riyadh, part of that story was a message about getting Hezbollah under control. Right to the Lebanese government. There was speculation that what bin Salman really wanted was for the Israelis to attack Hezbollah again. They showed no inclination to do that whatsoever. Um, and it was discussed, and certainly in the media. Um, so I don't think that there is uh, any kind of plan. I do think that there are pointers. Talk about the Red Sea, 
the Bab al-Mandeb, the idea that if the Iran nuclear crisis gets out of hand, then you could see things happening. But we've never seen anything like that yet publicly. Again, my point about what we don't know about what is secret, I think there are significant things going on, but not in terms, as far as we know, of joint military activity. Intelligence, yes, but that's a very different thing. But it can change. I think that the components of it are there, and if circumstances warrant it, I think that we could see uh, something like that. Thank you. I think time, at least one more round of questions. Here first. Um, <coughs> how does the cooperation between Israel and Saudi Arabia, um, how does that fit into Bin Salman's attempts to modernise and reform Saudi Arabia? Is, is this a part of a wider push from Saudi Arabia to become more amenable to the West in general? Thank you. Gentleman right at the back. Diverted from the talk, but my question was about the airstrikes that are, have Israeli airstrikes in Syria, and I think the one on Monday was the biggest one in a year, perhaps. And I wonder if you think it could amount to anything big. Did you get that? Yeah. Israeli airstrikes in Syria. And anybody else? Just maybe here. I've asked one already. Um, you said that Kuwait was conspicuous by its absence um, in this. Okay, thank you. So, um, um, I think that Bin Salman went to the U.S. for he spent about three weeks in the U.S. in uh, in April of this year. Um, it was a hugely uh, you know well publicized trip. You know, interviews and magazine covers and you know all those PR agencies and so on. And he did a couple of things that were very clearly designed to send messages about Israel. So he gave an interview to the Atlantic magazine, um, and he talked about... Um, there's a couple of quotes that, uh, that stick in one's mind. One was that, um, you know, if the Palestinians don't like the sort of proposals that President Trump is coming, come, going to come up with, then they can just, you know... I forget the phrase. I mean, it wasn't rude, but they can, you know, take a running jump, something like that. Um, in another interview, he said that, look, Israel, uh, like the Palestinians, has the right... Israelis, like Palestinians, have the right to their own country. They weren't extraordinary statements, but they were clearly designed to appeal to uh, an American audience, um, an American administration which, in theory at least, even under Trump, is committed to uh, a peaceful resolution of the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict. So I think it was part of his image. Um, young man, he's 32 years old. Um, he probably doesn't know that much about the history. Uh, I think there is a generational factor in this. I mean, I'd be interested to hear thoughts of anybody who knows, knows about this. I mean, in the Gulf, I think that if you're in your 30s or younger, you're not that aware of the emotional weight of the Palestine question. Israel has been there for a long time. They have you know, good technology, very powerful military, excellent relations with the United States. And uh, 
I think Bin Salman fits that generation. It's often said about him that, okay, maybe he does the odd thing, like the war in Yemen or Khashoggi that's not great. But basically, you know, young Saudis like the look of him. And, and, and I think that probably remains true. I think it's not a too controversial a statement. I think that he does have a lot of support. And the people who uh, clearly look up to him and are articulate and uh, experienced deliverers of messages and understand sort of, you know, kind of Western political culture, they say, look, you know, he is, he is very different. Um, so I think that that is part of his appeal. Uh, obviously, he blotted his copybook big time uh, over the Khashoggi affair. Um, but um, the modernizing uh, image, I think acceptance of Israel as a fact of life. Having said that, it is also very clear, and I, again, I didn't have time to go into this, but in the immediate aftermath of Bin Salman's, Bin Salman's visit to the US, something quite significant happened. It's, it's, Saudi Arabia remains an incredibly opaque place, difficult to understand, but something very clear happened. Uh, in, in the middle of April, there was an Arab League summit in Dahran in Saudi Arabia. King Salman uh, was the host of the summit, and he very uh, conspicuously named the summit the Al-Quds, the Jerusalem summit. And that was taken, I think, correctly as a very deliberate signal that whatever his, uh, you know, impressive son had said, some things remained uh, untouchable. And I think that was an important point. And I think it's part of the, the, the whole issue that we keep returning to of constraints on how far the Saudis can go. I'm sure many of you know that the title of the king of Saudi Arabia is that he is the custodian of the two holy mosques, Khadim al-Haram and al-Sharifi'in. That's a very, very important part of the legitimacy of the Saudi kingdom. Uh, and I think, myself, uh, that there is, given that bin Salman has made lots of headlines, I think the idea that he's going to, you know, uh, over a cup of tea with Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, is going to cook up a Palestinian capital in Abu Dis, which is a bit like saying moving the Palace of Westminster to, I don't know, to Pinner, say, you know, as an equivalent. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, so he gave the right messages, but he was also reined in on that point. Um, uh, Jad, you asked about the airstrikes in Syria. I mean, I think that, you know, the airstrikes in Syria are... Uh, alarming because I think that uh, they do risk getting out of hand. Uh, the Americans don't seem particularly interested. Uh, the Russians don't seem that bothered uh, either. I think the report today was that 12 Iranian military advisors or revolutionary guards had been killed. I mean, the risk of an open confrontation between Israel and uh, the Iranians in Syria is a very uh, volatile and uh, uh, frightening uh, concept. I think the Israelis feel uh, that they can do what they want. Trump has announced that he's leaving anyway. Uh, there's not always a complete identity of interest between the Russians and the Iranians. Uh, and I think that the Gulf states also are quite pleased, uh, more privately than publicly, to see the Israelis giving the uh, Iranians a, a, a bloody nose in Syria. It's part of the sort of strategic uh, convergence that we're seeing. And the question about Kuwait and the GCC is a really interesting uh, question. Uh, I just think it's, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't consider myself to be that expert on Kuwait, but I observe that, you know, Kuwait has 
uh, within limitations, a more active parliament than anywhere else uh, in, in the Gulf. It has a tradition of solidarity with the Palestinians. Having said that, of course, it also did expel thousands of Palestinians uh, after the uh, Iraqi invasion in, uh, in 1991. Uh, but, and I have to say that the fact that we don't know about it doesn't mean that it's not happening. I mean, I, I began with that list of events because I wanted to show that there's something happening everywhere. Uh, I don't have a parallel example, not from the public domain, uh, with Kuwait. It is true that a couple of years back, the then Israeli Defense Minister, Lieberman, uh, he actually said something on the record about we are we're working to improve relations with uh, the Saudis and Kuwait. Uh, the, there was an inter meeting of the Interparliamentary Union, I think last year, and I think that the chair of the assembly was from the Kuwaiti parliament, and he made a big thing that was all over social media of refusing to allow the uh, session to go ahead because there were uh, Israeli uh, members of parliament in the room. And it got a lot of attention and a lot of applause sort of, you know, the Arabic social media uh, sphere, which again is a reminder of the sort of constraints that do exist. But I mean, we don't know, uh, I don't know, if anybody else does, and please volunteer, uh, anything about those sort of clandestine links parallel to what's happening with all the other Gulf states with, with Kuwait. Thank you. We, we have to finish at half past. So I'm thinking of finishing now because you're one consequence of your wonderfully concise questions is that you've made our speaker work much harder than usual. So I appreciate Ian taking time to, to answer those uh, questions with the same kind of insight uh, that you also applied to your presentation in the paper. So I hope you join me uh, to thank Ian very much for what was a fascinating uh, presentation. Thank you. Thank you.